This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 says, Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Everybody say Melchizedek. Wow, that's a big word, isn't it? Anybody ever heard that name before? It's really in the Bible, I promise. Have you guys ever wondered why Jesus had to pay the ultimate sacrifice? Why did he have to go on a cross? Why did he have to die such an excruciating death? Couldn't we have had some other story of salvation in a different way? Or just couldn't have God just made it all go away and just been much simpler and not have to go through much pain and suffering? I can't deny that there's been times where I've wondered that. Why, God? Why? Why did, why did Jesus have to go through all this? Well, we see here in verses 1 through 5, if you want to put uh, maybe one up on the screen, the, you see here the precedent set by God in the Old Testament for a Levitical priest, which was a Levite, was to come and bring a sacrifice on behalf of the people. What was a sacrifice? Usually it was a sheep, maybe it was a goat, but it was something that was costly. It was something that cost the people something. And so because God had set this up in, in the Old Testament, it had been done for generation after generation after generation. Now Aaron was a Le- Levitical priest, and he was ordained by God to start this process. But thus moving all the way forward to the time of Jesus, where you have generations of people that have been sacrificing the animals and the lambs in place to take over for the sins of mankind. Now, thus moving forward, we see that the priests were still practicing these sacrifices and they were to, sin, you know, to cleanse the sins of the people. The text here, it highlights Jesus' qualification as a high priest who can empathize with human weakness and offer sacrifices for the sins of people. 
As we move further along into verses 5 and 6, we see that like Aaron, Christ was chosen. He did not elect himself. Now, could he have? Absolutely. Could he have just, he's the son of God. Could he have just stepped in and said, today, I think I'll be a high priest. But no, just like he didn't come in and be born in a palace, he was born in a manger, in a stable. He also came in humbly, and he didn't take a place as a high priest until God ordained him by divine declaration to be the high priest and stand in the gap as a proxy to take away the sins of the whole world, yours and mine. He was set in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? This guy. Where did he come from? Who is he? What a name. Well, he's a figure mentioned in the Bible, primarily in the, in the book of Genesis. So again, if we go back to the Old Testament, you see it says in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. He's blessed be Abram, the God of Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed by God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek the tenth of all the goods he had recovered. You see here in Genesis, he appears to be a, pre- a priest king who blessed Abraham after he had a huge victory in battle. And what does Abraham do? He gives him a tithe. He recognizes Melchizedek's authority and his superiority. Melchizedek is presented as a type of foreshadowing of Jesus Christ to come, as Hebrews explains. Now, in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is compared to Jesus to highlight the superiority of Jesus's priesthood. Now, you could say, whoa, this is just a lot of, whoa, it's a lot of information. But this is so important because it's literally a foreshadowing of the Old Testament to the New Testament. In a way, it's kind of like a type of prophecy of things to come. Hebrews presents Melchizedek as an archetype of Jesus, emphasizing that Jesus is a high priest forever. And he's eternal and superior to the temporary priesthood of the Levitical system that was only for a little bit because Jesus' reign is going to be forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. And it also relates to us to show us how Jesus' priesthood relates to the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, let's look at something that's super amazing about the Word of God. Melchizedek, his name specifically, is broken into two words, Melchi and Zedek. And Melchi means king, while Zedek means righteousness. So Melchizedek, his name itself, literally translates to king of righteousness. Now, this king of righteousness, he was the king over a place called Salem. Anybody ever heard of it? Probably not, but if you hadn't, let me tell you something amazing about it. Salem is the biblical place that refers to the holy city of Jerusalem. It has the same word, root words as shalom. So Melchizedek was literally a king of righteousness ruling over a city of peace. And isn't what that what Jesus is for us? Yeah, amen. So good. God's word is so alive, it's active, it's, it's from a long time ago, right, Old Testament, it's present, and it's going into the future, into eternity, and it's just exciting to dive in it with you today. 
We're going to be looking more at the significance of Melchizedek in the coming weeks. So we'll see, find out a little bit more. But right now, let's just look at Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. Perfect. Well, she gets seven up there. It says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers of his deep reverence from God. Even though Jesus was God's only son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. In this way, God literally became qualified as a perfect high priest. No other high priest before him was perfect, right? The other high priests had to go before to um, sacrifice for both the sins of the people and on behalf of them, themselves because they were human too. But God was perfect high priest, and he came, became source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be the high priest, again, in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in verse 7, it describes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Anyone know where the Mount of Olives is? Well, it's in Jerusalem. One side is the Temple Mount. There's a kind of a canyon kind of like right here in the, in the middle uh, called the Valley of Kidron. And then on the opposite side is the Mount of Olives. And in this Mount of Olives, it's a beautiful garden. A beautiful garden that has olive trees all over the place. And the Garden of Gethsemane, literally the name means oil press. Can you imagine that? In this place, we see Jesus literally under the press, under pressure. Anybody ever had some pressure? Anybody experienced pressure maybe even right now at your job, in your, in your life, in your family? Well, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before God, under pressure, trying to decide if he is willing to take this cup of suffering. We will see further in Luke twenty-two forty-one, specifically what he says. It says, he walked away about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. But yet, not my will, but yours be done. He had a cup that he was about to drink from. He knew what was coming his way. But yet, he literally sweat drops of blood in this place because of the pressure that he was in, in this place of the great oil press. He says, Father, take this cup, but let your will be done. Jesus here is referring to his upcoming crucifixion and the cup that he is suffering, of suffering he must drink. Through scripture, this cup is often used as many metaphorical symbols that represents different aspects, maybe of God's judgment, maybe of his wrath, and even his blessings. In particular, when we talk about this cup of suffering, we are referring to a time of trial, affliction, and anguish that he's about to experience. We see here in the garden, just before his crucifixion, he said, my father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. Amen? Amen. I'm so glad he decided to do that, aren't you? Just think where we'd be if he didn't. 
things would be a lot, lot different. The cup of suffering in Jesus' context represents the weight of sin, humanity's divine judgment that needed to be poured out, the wrath of God, if you will, on sin. But Jesus took that. He was sinless, and he willingly accepted this cup of suffering upon himself, expressing submission to the Father's will and his deep love for you and his deep love for me. Jesus sacrifice on the cross and his victory over the cup of suffering gives us the forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life that we might not other have. Through faith in Jesus, we can partake in this blessing of his resurrection and transformational renewal that comes from the power of his sacrificial love. Wow. Thank you, Jesus, for for doing that for me. I just want to say that right now. In summary, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 reveals specifically how Jesus experienced this cup of suffering and how it's connected to his role as high priest. It emphasizes with my weakness and your weakness, but also Jesus shows us his weakness in the garden as he goes. He's uniquely qualified there to intercede not only on his own behalf, but on our behalf. Through his suffering, Jesus perfected this obedience, and now we have eternal salvation. So amazing. Thank you, Lord. When I visited Jerusalem this last year, I was able to go visit many of the pools below the temple. And the pools, why I share this with you is because it's so important that we know that these things literally do exist. Everything that is in the Bible is true. It lines up with the Word of God, and there's evidence, and there's proof of it. And so I just want to share here a a slide. This is a pool that the priest would use to cleanse themselves before entering the temple. And they're literally referred to as mikvahs or a ritual bath. And this is one, it's literally underneath the, the big wall that you see people praying on. It's underground underneath. And this is one of the mikvahs that only the high of the highest priests could use that they've uncovered. And you can see here the steps going down and then the steps going back out. And they did that because they wanted to go in and then leave cleansed. And then somebody else might come right behind them. And if they didn't have steps the other way, then they'd have to keep going in. So they, it made the steps go in and out instead of just in so they wouldn't get unclean by accidentally touching somebody as they were getting in. These mikvahs were specifically designed for the Jewish purification process. The priests would immerse themselves in this bath to achieve a state of ritual purity required in order to then walk up and serve in the temple. The concept of this was an essential part of purifying themselves for their religious practices during this time. Now, two other important pools that are just a walk away, five-minute walk away, are the Pool of Bethesda, and you can go there and see it. There it is right there. Now, this pool is pretty amazing, but there's another pool, the Pool of Siloam. We'll talk about both of them, but first, let's talk about the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda is where many, many sick people gathered. They they sought healing here. And Jesus encountered a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he healed him miraculously and demonstrated his authority over sickness disease right here in this location. And it also at times was used, you know, as a mikvah for people to go and get spiritually cleansed. Now, similarly, another pool right next to it is called the Pool of Siloam. 
And that pool is right here. Now, this pool's just been uncovered in the last probably five years, maybe 10, um, that they haven't told us about. But more recently, they've just started uncovering it, and they're going to be opening it to the public um, very soon. Right now, it's not open to the public, but I was able to go down and tour um, underground and see it. And so you can see just this little teeny spot where they've just started to uncover it. This spot is the place where Jesus healed the blind man. And so you can see the significance of Jesus healing somebody from their, their sickness, from their disease, from their blindness, and getting sight, getting restoration. And it signifies the power of Jesus and his healing redemptive work can be, bring renewal to those around, around him. Amen. And he can do that for you as he's done for me. Now, this next picture is going to show you the Pool of Siloam, um, how it's going to look when it's uncovered. You can see that very little strip that you saw. That's an old picture. They've gotten a lot of it uncovered now. Um, but you can see there's the Pool of Siloam at the very bottom. And then people would dip in the pool to get purified. And then they would walk all the way up the hill to the temple. And obviously, only certain people could go to certain places in the temple, but that's what they would do um, in order to find healing and cleansing. Now, both the Pool of Siloam and Bethesda brought healing and restoration, and so does Jesus. They point to the transformative power of Jesus' ministry. Now, this cup of suffering represents the sacrificial suffering that Jesus did for us on the cross when he took our sins and, and then gave us salvation. Through his suffering, Jesus offers spiritual cleansing and healing, much like these pools represent physical healing and cleansing. Just as the priests cleanse themselves in the pool before the entering the temple, Jesus' sacrificial suffering provides us a way to approach God to be clean before the throne. The cup of suffering and the healing power of Jesus brought about spiritual restoration, enabling you and me to have a relationship with God that we might not otherwise have at all because of sin, right, and death. It is a beautiful picture of the message of the cup of suffering, emphasizing Jesus's ministry and his ability to cleanse my soul and to cleanse your soul. Um, one other very important aspect of these verses we're looking at in today in Hebrew is Jesus' acceptance and of God's will and his obedience, right? His willingness, like I said, to drink. He didn't have to, but he did. By this, he fully submitted himself to the Father, even unto death, and thus resurrection. The connection between the cup of suffering and obedience can be understood in a couple different ways. First, he had a commitment to obedience and the Father's will. Second, he was rooted in love. And third, obedience, Jesus led by example. So the first one, Jesus had commitment to obedience because he had unwavering commitment to fulfill the, the plan that God had for him, right? Yeah. Now, rooted in love, Jesus' obedience was rooted deep in love for the Father and for you and me. He said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one another. Lastly, obedience. Jesus led by obedience, and he asked as well that as followers of Christ, we are called also to surrender to God's will for our lives, 
even in the face of suffering and challenges. Now, we're very blessed and lucky that he took the big one for us, right? But we all still have suffering and we all still have challenges. Like Jesus, we're called, again, to be committed to obedience of our Father, being rooted in love, and number three, leading by example. Today, I want to ask you, how are you doing at this? How are you tending your garden, shall we say? Yesterday, I was at home, and I have some rose bushes. And anybody out there garden? Have a few bushes or roses, flowers, maybe cactus? I don't know. What do you garden? Well, the garden carefully trims away, right? Dead branches and excess foliage. Sometimes you got to get really dirty, got to get your hands in the dirt. Sometimes it can get really hot. Sometimes you might be under a lot of pressure. You feel like you're having to pull out so many weeds and they just keep coming. Sometimes you might even get a thorn in your finger, a little bit of suffering's going on, right? But we know that pruning promotes growth, redirects energy to fruitful areas, and ensures a more abundant harvest. Likewise, guys, God, as the gardener, might allow you to go through a season of pruning and discomfort, removing what hinders your spiritual growth, but redirecting our focus towards bearing fruit for his kingdom. Let's see just a few other cups that are in the Bible. We see here in this next passage in Zechariah 12.2, where the cup is referred to a cup of trembling in Zechariah 12, 2, 3, it says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem a removable rock for all the nations. All that try to move it will endure themselves. It's a prophecy of things to come, things that haven't quite yet, yet happened, but that God is literally going to make Jerusalem a rock. We also see the cup as a cup of salvation. In Psalms 116.13, many reference the cup in the Bible, speak of judgment and suffering, but there is a positive aspect, guys. The cup speaks of a lifting up of this cup of salvation and calling on the name of the Lord. This indicates a cup that represents God's deliverance, blessing, and salvation. And Psalms 116.13 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. So today I want to invite you to join in Jesus' footsteps. First, I want to encourage you to, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was under that oil press, to number one, tell him what's on your heart. Whatever it is, whatever's going on, whatever's stirring inside you, that you have anguish or pressure that you need to tell him, tell him what's on your heart. Number two, pray for the Father's will in your life. Ask him, God, not my will in this situation, but what is your will for my life? And third, when he tells you, obey. Lastly, number four, receive his cup of salvation. 
If that's you today and you say, yes, I want to submit to the Father today. I want to submit to obedience and love and example. I want to take this everlasting cup of salvation that Jesus, my high priest, the King of Kings, is offering me today. Then I just invite you to now say this prayer after me. Jesus, Lord, Savior, I ask God that you would come into my life. I ask that you would be Lord over all. I give you my heart, I give you my mind, I give you my spirit. I ask, God, that you would renew in me a clean heart, God. I submit to your ways, God, not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. 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 Lastly, the correlation to a cup of wine comes to the Last Supper, where Jesus instituted a practice of the Lord's Supper or communion. During this meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, the cup of wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus, which was poured out for the redemption and forgiveness of sins. By taking this cup of wine during the Lord's Supper, we as Christians who have received Jesus receive the cup of salvation. And we can remember and we can proclaim the significance of Jesus, of his sacrificial death and suffering, and the new covenant established through his blood, but most importantly, through the salvation that we get and eternal life in his sufferings and in his victory. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com dot com.